So my guest today is uh, Rob Henderson. Rob, it's a pleasure to get the chance to, to speak with you. Um, you know, you've been putting out some really interesting writing on a variety of subjects, you know, kind of general intellectual, but what makes particularly, I think what grounds you is this unique perspective of having lived the life of lower working class, struggling, um, your experience with adoption, and then the military, and then what I like to call the gentry, right? The intellectual <laughs> yeah. class. Yeah, my, my own childhood background is not quite so traumatic, but I also lived in this kind of liminal space between these different cultural memes. My mom was valedictorian of her high school. She was a graduate of uh, uh, UC Irvine. My dad came from the wealthiest family in uh, Skagit County where I grew up. But because we were part of the counterculture, we grew up under the poverty line. Hmm. And I got... Uh, you know, it was involved with lots of chaotic stuff because of the the hippie culture. All right. And so when I read your writing, like I'm like, oh, I think I think I see, I feel a lot of affinity for that perspective that you bring, and I think it's really necessary right now because I think in many of the you know what you call luxury beliefs, mm. they arise because the gentry class is so separated from the experience of working class Americans. So I'd love to hear you just talk first a little bit about your background mm -hmm. and then how those different experiences helped you form your perspective and what it's like to go from, you know, Red Bluff to the military to, um, to uh, sorry, was it Harvard? I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, thanks. It's, it's great to be here. And uh, yeah, it's 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 rare that I yeah, I get to speak with with uh, with podcast hosts who have you know some some overlapping experiences like that. I mean, yeah, I, I call Red Bluff my my hometown, but that's mm -hmm. just because I lived there the longest. Um, I yeah, like you mentioned, so I you know I just you know received a PhD from Cambridge last year. I was, was at Yale for undergrad, but um, yeah, I sort of took this winding indirect path to higher education, and then towards sort of writing and and. Um, yeah, doing the sort of work that I'm doing now. Um, so I I was born uh, in Los Angeles, California, uh, and never met my father. My mother uh, was addicted to drugs. Um, she was unable to care for me. So when I was three, I was placed into the foster system in Los Angeles um, and lived in seven different homes all over LA. And then I was uh, I was adopted um, when I was seven, almost eight years old. And then, so my adoptive family and I, we settled in this dusty town in Northern California called Red Bluff, which is about you know, two hours north of Sacramento. It's part of California most people aren't familiar mm -hmm. with. It's, I mean, I, I don't know, I've never been to Kansas, but you know, I kind of imagine it's something <laughs> yeah. like that. I mean, it's kind of rural. It's um, it's also a very uh, uh, sort of high crime, high poverty area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at the, the the statistics, Red Bluff is typically ranked as the third or the fourth most dangerous city in California, typically right behind Oakland. Um, and some, oh, I want to say something like thirty percent of the children under eighteen live in poverty or below the poverty level, and it's just kind of a, uh, uh, yeah, just a kind of impoverished area and my so so he yeah, was adopted my my father was a my adoptive father was a truck driver my mom was an assistant social worker and they cared for me for you know, a little over a year you know, coming up, it was about 18 months they they divorced subsequently 
my adoptive father, um, he's angry at my adoptive mother for leaving him. He subsequently stopped speaking with me. And so my, uh, my adoptive mother was basically a single mom raising me and my, my adoptive sister, who was her birth daughter. And we moved to this kind of gloomy duplex uh, behind this gas station in Red Bluff. And, um, you know, after sort of you know, not never knowing my father and then sort of being taken from my mother and then you know, no longer having contact with my adoptive father, these were just extremely difficult experiences for me. And so, you know, I, I acted out the way a lot of young boys do when they don't have a lot of structure, when they don't have fathers. I, you know, I uh, neglected my coursework. I got, you know, involved and hung out with, you know, other kind of troublemaking young boys who were also raised by single moms or by grandparents or some other kind of situation where, um, you know, they were sort of in these alternate family structures. And so, um, yeah, it was just really difficult experiences for me. And, and my mom, you know, she was working full time, so she wasn't yeah. really able to to give me the kind of oversight that I could have needed uh, or should have needed, should have had. And so, um, yeah, barely, you know, sort of fast forwarding a bit. I, I barely graduated high school um, with a, a 2.2 GPA, so kind of like a C minus. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just knew that my life was not going in a positive direction. And so, yeah, right after I graduated, I just enlisted on kind of a an impulsive decision. It wasn't really well thought out, but you know, I knew that was a quick way to just get out of there, sort of hit the reset button and go to a mm-hmm. different area, different people, different everything. And so that sort of redirected my, my trajectory. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, all of those experiences together, they were, they were, they were difficult. I mean, my, my birth mother was subsequently uh, deported. So she was from Seoul, South Korea. Okay. And so, you know, I was an American citizen. I was born in the U.S., and so I, I remained here. And um, my my father, who, like, like I said, I'd, I'd never met him, but I took a 23andMe DNA test. Uh, was it, it, was, it was recently. I want to say it was this year. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I had no idea, like, ethnically, like, mm-hmm. what my father was. Or, and so, so then, I you know, I got these results. And uh, I was a bit confused by them at first, uh, and I, I actually uh, sent them to a mutual uh, friend of ours, uh, Razib Khan, the geneticist. Yeah. He, you know, he helped me kind of parse it out, and he was like, "Oh, your your dad." And he was you know, tongue in cheek. He was like, "Your dad was Latinx or Latinx or whatever." <laughs> He's like, "Your dad." That, that, uh, that is yeah. what Razib would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, well, because you know, it was, it was a little bit confusing because like you know, it was like twenty six percent Spain, twenty whatever four point something percent like indigenous North American, yeah. and that's basically the genetic makeup mm-hmm. of like a, a typical person from Mexico. Yeah. And so he's like, you know, and you're from L.A., so your dad was almost certainly you know, Hispanic, probably mm-hmm. from Mexico. Um, and so, so yeah, I, uh, you know, that, that day I, I went to bed a uh, 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 white adjacent Asian, and then I woke <laughs> up an underrepresented minority as a, as a Latinx male. Very good. So. <laughs> that's good. Um, and so, so, yeah, that's the sort of long story short. And then from, 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 the, from the military, uh, went to Yale in the GI Bill and then Cambridge on scholarship and... Uh, yeah, I started writing and, and sharing my experiences along the way. You wrote a piece recently about young male syndrome, which was mm-hmm. quite interesting to me. And I'll, maybe we can dive into the reasons why. But I kind of want to dive into it on a biographical scale. So I, I believe in that you mentioned that you grew up with two moms for a while, right? You yeah. Know, after your your uh, your step or your adoptive parents separated, mm-hmm. your uh, your adoptive mom ended up in a relationship with another woman. Yeah. So yeah. you went from that experience. And then, and then you were exposed to say the masculinity of of dead end working class kids. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's so my my adoptive mom. So yeah, was was nine years old, 
and my mom entered a relationship with with a woman named Shelly, and they kind of raised me into adolescence, although they ended up having a separation later. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was this period of stability uh, in my my adolescence from nine to, yeah, roughly nine to 13, 14, and yeah, so so that was, and and, and that was like a, a, a good period, that was like the part of my childhood that I remember the most fondly. Um, and, and yeah, I, I tell, yeah, when I, when I described the, the young male syndrome, um, I delivered this talk and shared this, this text on my Substack about how, you know, the, the first time anyone had ever really referred to me as a, as a man, uh, and I, I, you know, chronologically, I wasn't a man, I was only 13, but I, uh, remember, uh, uh, you know, this was winter time in California, in Northern California, where you know, temperatures could dip into the thirties and we had this fireplace. And so my mom and Shelly uh, asked me if I would, um, uh, uh, build a fire in the mornings. I'd wake up at 5.30, build a fire so that the house would be warm by the time they woke up at 7 to get ready for work. Um, and, you know, at first I, you know, I was 13 and I was, you know, kind of a rebellious kid. I'm like, you know, this is ridiculous, like 5.30? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, yeah, Shelly and my mom, they sat me down and they said, look, like you're, you know, we, we work all day to pay the bills. We take care of you and your sister and, you know, make sure that you guys are sort of fed and taken care of. This is the least you can do as the man of the house mm-hmm. is to, you know, get up and, and make sure the house is warm uh, for the family. And, uh, yeah, so that was, it was kind of like an interesting reframe for me because I, you know, of course for me, it was, I felt like it was just this, um, this burden placed on me. Yeah. Like you have to wake up early. That's all I really thought about it. Like, oh, now I'm being forced to wake up early. And then once they explained to me the benefit of the action and the contribution that I was making, that was helpful for me. I mean, I still wasn't exactly thrilled about it, but at least I understood it. <laughs> I agree. Um, and then, yeah, the the other kinds of yeah masculinity. Just, I mean, it, it was this kind of cheap counterfeit masculinity of you know a bunch of young boys who, you know, weren't raised by their fathers, and you know we took our cues from pop culture or mm-hmm. music or uh, movies or just whatever was around us, and we had that kind of uh, juvenile. And, you know, view of masculinity is just like being tough or taking risks or uh, getting into fights or yeah. doing drugs or, you know, seeing how much you could drink without visibly appearing drunk and then suddenly you'd be smashed. And yeah, so it's just that that's the kind of masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had similar experiences. I remember getting up in the morning with my older brother and going out and chopping wood to uh, put in the, in the stove and uh, lots of um, lots of fist fights. Yeah. For sure, that was a big part of uh, of the culture where I grew up in, right? Like redneck culture. Um, mm-hmm. Lumber is the big industry in the town that I grew up in, and so I imagine Redbluff, maybe agriculture. Maybe, oh, yeah, yeah, there's maybe a lumber, lumber mill out there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so a lot of these kids, you know, sons of loggers, like you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of frontier mentality. A lot of like, you know, you got to be hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I grew up with that, and some I I didn't have the military experience. I guess the closest thing for me was the martial arts. But you, so you grew up. And I, I would say also, there is a commonality there, though, because like my father was a was a collegiate uh, collegiate football player and a wrestler, mm-hmm. um, all state wrestler. But he, even though he was you know in many ways like a very exemplary male in some ways, he would kind of rejected the traditional masculinity of his chi- of his childhood mm-hmm. as he entered the counterculture. Right, mm-hmm. there were periods in my my childhood and my dad was wearing skirts and women's blouses right mm-hmm. i mean he's this powerful hairy man and you know uh not not trying to be trans or anything just just yeah just rebelling Bre- by breaking the norm by breaking yeah, the norm yeah, right yeah. 
Um, but I did feel like there was like a real insta. There was no exemplar of what an adult male looked like hmm. that I felt like I could aspire to yeah. when I was in my childhood. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm curious what that experience was like because it sounds like it was the same for you. Mm. And then, and I also had the experience that I think you shared, which was that the people you could rely on in your life were women mm. Mm. who were adults. Right. Yeah. And then you arrive in in the military. Mm-hmm. How, what was that experience of like expectations around you as a young man coming out of the culture that you grew up in and then entering the military? Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I think I, I, I absorbed, like, I didn't really know what to expect when I entered the military. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I just sort of absorbed through maybe cultural osmosis this belief that, you know, the, there are kinds of, there are people who go to college and then there are people who maybe worked at end jobs and then the people, like the military and these other options were kind of for people who maybe uh, weren't weren't uh, diligent enough or weren't academically equipped or something. And so they go to the military. Um, but actually, I, I, and then I also, you know, I guess, yeah, I, I assume to some extent that a lot of the, the other sort of new recruits would have similar backgrounds to me. And it really wasn't like that. I was I was surprised. Um, later, I actually dug into the research and the survey data on this. But at the time, I remember I was 17. I was the youngest guy um, in my unit uh, when I was in basic training. And you know, I would say, yeah, the, the, that the average recruit was come from like probably a lower middle or middle class family. Most of them had moms and dads or, or if not like a step parent, but yeah. basically more or less an intact family and uh you know i remember uh, for graduation and basic training like you know they, they had moms and dads show up and they had siblings and they had like like a, what you would expect is like a conventional family to to look like uh and um yeah there were a couple of people with with single parents but but not as much as i expected um but it was uh it was i guess my first kind of exposure to what is a like what a conventional sort of middle class uh, culture is like, uh, and just in terms of expectations, in terms of family, in terms of, I mean, even small things like uh, uh, a lot of the people that I grew up around, you know, you, you got paid by, by the hour, by the week, mm-hmm. you got paid sort of, you know, hourly wages. And in the military, you know, like it, it was, it was, you know, you get paid uh, uh, by salary. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's how people thought in terms of uh, monthly or annual income and not, mm-hmm. you know, how much am I making this Friday? How many hours did you put in? That kind of thing. Uh, and, and so, yeah, small things like that um, stood out to me. And and then the other thing, like the other benefit of the military for me was, well, there were the there were the factors you would expect, of course, that kind of discipline, the camaraderie, the strong expectations. Uh, and then I think the other thing was just was just time. Um, you know, uh, I think if you take almost any teenage boy who grows up in kind of disorderly, um, tumultuous circumstances, you know, they're going to have some sort of impulsivity issues some behavioral issues, mm-hmm. um, you know, they'll externalize. And so for me, because the military was such a, an overpowering, overbearing, rigid structure, it prevents you from doing anything too catastrophic. Yeah. And it sort of allows you to to sort of mature age out of that young male syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I joined when I was 17, which is, you know, more or less the peak of that sort of impulsive propensity. And then you do an enlistment and, you know, it's four or six years later and then you're in your 20s. And you usually by that point, you know, hopefully you've learned some lessons in the military, but then also just had that time to like decompress and cool off and like allow your frontal lobes to develop a little <laughs> bit and gain some self-awareness and, and the ability to introspect. And in the meantime, 
you're like every minute of your life is occupied, especially in the early years during training, where every aspect of your existence is tightly regulated from, you know, how your uniform looks to how your bed is made to, uh, you know, what time you're supposed to be at work. And, and the military makes it very clear to you that if you, you know, if you do X, Y will happen and, and there's no question about it. And so, you know, if you fail a drug test, yeah. right, you will be court-martialed. You know, you go to prison. Like I say, <laughs> reminds yeah. me of uh, Warren Farrell's presentation about uh, okay. uh, male parents are better at boundary um, enforcement. Mm. Female parents are better at boundary setting. So, okay. like a, uh, a, a the army is very very strong in the boundary enforcement, mm. which for a kid who grew up in a chaotic situation, yeah. uh, seems like a really really powerful tool actually in. Um, in starting to grow up, right? Mm. Sort of some of the things that a father might have provided in a gentler way over the course of a childhood can be hammered in maybe a little bit quick and dirty yeah. uh, through through the experience of the military. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really helpful. For me. I mean, even even small things like I don't think I'd ever made a bed in my life until I was you know, until <laughs> I was you know, shipped out, and then suddenly I'm like you know perfect hospital corners. Yeah, you yeah. know, like everything had to be meticulous, no wrinkles. And at the time, I thought it was ridiculous, but you know, obviously in hindsight, I can see there's benefit to sort of essentially taking pride in everything that you yeah. do, and that carries over into everything else. So, so what I heard kind of was that for you, the military, you were kind of in a chaotic state, mm -hmm. potentially. You know, continuing behaviors like excessive drinking, getting into fights that are going to, uh, you know, maybe result in prison time, maybe result in, you know, uh, losing jobs, not being able to progress in your life. Um, and then, you know, the military basically took you through the most difficult years of your own personal development yeah. um, and gave you structure. Now, uh, there's a couple things there that I wanted to continue on. One is... Um, my curiosity was more around what was the experience or the the it's like a what is the anthropological um, sort of observation of what masculinity meant in that military context and mm -hmm. what it was like to now have male mentors mm -hmm. versus the experience that you had growing up but before we go there I think that um, it's important actually to to ground the idea of young male syndrome for people mm -hmm. in the audience because they might not be familiar with it and now we're starting yeah. to refer back to it so can you just kind of run through that for us yeah, yeah. So the young male syndrome is essentially uh, like a constellation of uh, psychological and behavioral traits, um, sort of documenting these patterns from roughly uh, the late teens to the early 20s. This is sort of the, the years when young men are the most uh, uh, likely to be involved in sort of risk taking, dangerous behaviors, excess drinking, drug use, violence, likelihood of being arrested. and What's interesting to me about this is that the, the pattern appears cross-culturally, mm -hmm. um, you know, from, from non-industrialized hunter-gatherer societies all the way up to sort of rich, modern, developed countries. Um, if you want to know sort of who's committing the crime and who's kind of, who are the troublemakers, it's almost always sort of teenagers and, and, and early 20s males. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even things like, so this is just in the U.S. context. Uh, even likelihood of being hospitalized for punching a wall. Yeah, <laughs> this is. I mean, I shared this this graph on online recently of, uh, or there was a, this chart of sort of you know age age uh, of hospitalizations for for wall punching by age for for men, <laughs> and it was like you know the the uh, up 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 until like age ten or twelve, there's like essentially flat line zero. Yeah. No one's really, and then like you know the early years, there are twelve, thirteen, fourteen of adolescence. It kind of creeps up, and but it's then you know like nineteen, twenty, twenty one, twenty two. It's like you know super high, and then you know again flat lines again. 
again. And, um, and that's kind of the pattern for all of these sources so, of so drinking and driving, um, uh, uh, being arrested for, for assault yep. or um, speeding. Yeah, speeding, even yeah, yeah, auto auto collisions, auto even things like crossing the street. Um, so a man is more than twice as likely as a woman to be struck by a car just crossing the road. Yeah, you know whether whether it's uh, uh, sort of obliviousness and carelessness, or if it's maybe to impress someone or just to, to, to feel tough themselves to just cross the road when there are cars zooming by. Um, and and you know so, sort of on a smaller level, um, likelihood of wearing a seatbelt is lowest mm-hmm. during the late teens and early twenties. So you yeah, can see is. all those as, in some sense, an expression of risk tolerance, right? right? Like yeah. if you are more risk tolerant jaywalking, mm-hmm. you're going to jaywalk when cars are closer to you, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm always curious about like absolute numbers with those because you're mm-hmm. like, oh, you said it was double the amount that women do? Double the amount of men relative to women. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's actually not that big of a difference right. in some ways compared to a lot of these things, right? It's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. 93% of our murderers are men. Yeah. And almost yeah. all of those are... Uh, young men, young and it, men. Yeah. you know, I wonder how many people are, are struck by those cars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. if it's a, if it's a small absolute number, yeah, but yeah. Um, it might not indicate that much. You know, of a really different, much more than men having higher risk tolerance, right? Right. Which we know, right. like in financial markets, men have higher risk tolerance. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. So sort of across the board. These differences can be pronounced to likelihood of arrest, likelihood yeah. of. I mean, there there are a couple of. Uh, oh, I, I don't recall the specific crimes where women are almost as likely to be arrested. I don't know if it was. Uh, I mean, these are sort of more um, like like shoplifting, mm. um, where where women are just as likely. I think there are even a couple where women are slightly more, but they're like nonviolent crimes, yeah. right? Where they're sort of thrill seeking, sort of uh, um, you know, no no physical risk, no danger uh, involved. But yeah, generally speaking, anything that, that could potentially be physically harmful. I mean, I'm thinking back to like you know the things that my friends and I we play a uh, chicken uh, on the on the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. You know where you'd have you know the, the railroad you know the, you're waiting the train is about to come and you and another friend are both yeah, standing yeah. on the tracks. Whoever jumps off, whoever first. jumps off first is is the loser. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. The one who's actually the smart one yeah, who doesn't yeah. want to die is the you know the and uh, and I I you know perhaps there are some. Uh, teenage girls who play that, but I doubt it. You know, I doubt probably there are very, very many. Small very small. Very yeah, small, yeah. Very small numbers. Whereas fifteen-year-old boys, I you know, it's probably probably not uncommon uh, yeah. for that kind of behavior. I mean, you know, my my professional background is, you know, one of the major components is teaching parkour for eighteen years. Mm. Parkour can really be seen as a kind of very progressive, highly intelligent risk. Um, courting behavior or risk mm. uh, p- risk play behavior mm-hmm. people think parkour is really dangerous it actually um, has a lower injury rate than indoor soccer mm. um, but nonetheless like the consequent the potential consequences of parkour can be very high yeah. and that makes it uh, quite attractive to young men um, and often less attractive to women right mm. even though I think it's very good for everybody mm. but uh, but it is a sort of positive game of of seeking struggle and seeking encounter with danger and yeah. risk. I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy for young men to, yeah. to do things like, I mean, young people in general, but especially young men to take those risks. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times when we talk about these things, it sounds like we're pathologizing yeah. male behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if men don't ex- express the same characteristics that make women safer, like, you, you know, there's a Twitter account, why do men die earlier than women, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But some of that yeah. is like, it's a downstream consequences of, of actual potentially virtues. You need them, right? Yeah. You need those men who are who are willing to take those risks 
to become our firefighters right. and our police officers, yeah. you know, uh, SEALs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, the young male syndrome in general. Yeah, it does. It does sound like, yeah, you're pathologizing or or making light of it, and you know, to some extent, maybe. But but I think um, one one uh, point of of that essay that I wrote about the young male yeah. syndrome, and, and 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 I think more generally, uh, is to understand that. You know that that can be sort of shaped and sculpted, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have yeah, that risk-taking exactly. propensity, yeah. and instead of the kid going to play chicken on the railroad tracks, you can say, "Hey, let's try parkour, or let's play exactly. sports, or let's try some MMA or something." Yeah. Where they want to be a little bit physical and they want to take risks, and maybe they want to show off a little bit and be tough, and uh, yeah, instead of um, you know trying to get into you know fist fights uh, in front of the the local gas station, they can go do something else instead and do something a bit more productive and more sort of controlled. Yeah. Something like yeah. wrestling or MMA or. or yeah. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, when I was in my, in that young male phase, right, I had a lot of uh, desire to fight, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I had fought a lot in my early childhood, like, uh, first, second, third grade. Mm-hmm. I've gotten in a lot of fist fights, and I, I'd like to say that I don't think that I enjoyed hurting people particularly. It wasn't mm-hmm. so much a sadistic thrill, um, but there was something about that the contest and the pure physicality of it. Yeah. It was very, um, very rewarding for me. And so as I entered my late puberty and early teens, and I was you know, quite trained as a martial artist, I, um, I would walk down the street and I would just kind of hope that someone would start a fight with me. <laughs> yeah. I was always like hoping. Yeah, Eventually yeah. I just went and worked as a bouncer. Right. I worked night club security for three years just so that I could... Yeah. Because it was fun. Yeah. Just because it was fun. Like yeah. when, when somebody acted out and I got to go pick them up and take yeah. them out of the bar, yeah. um, it made my night. Yeah. I, I, I was really happy when I did that. And uh, yeah. it was cool to be able to do it in that context because I knew that I was doing it in a very ethical way. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was lucky. I, I never encountered a situation where I had to strike somebody or use like a, a chokehold or anything on anybody. Mm-hmm. So I was able to physically take them out of the bar mm-hmm. uh, without doing that. Uh, and you know, and I was I was performing a, a service for all the other people in the bar because I was mm. taking out mostly young aggressive males yeah, who were yeah. trying to fight. Like I was, yeah. I was the sheepdog to the wolves of yeah. uh, of young male syndrome. Yeah, um, I think it's a great example, right? Like a bouncer is another. Like you mentioned, firefighter, police, mm-hmm. seals. I think bouncer is also yeah. just an example of, you know, instead like you know, uh, depending on you know the, the so the guys that you were pulling out of the bar and. And yeah. and uh, ejecting, you know, b- depending on their life circumstances and so on and so forth, like they may have just as easily been able to be a bouncer had they had some different incentives and different role yeah. models and different people in their life. But they were on the other side of that interaction. Yeah, you know, and and that would have been a, you know, instead of doing that, they could have been a bouncer or, or one of these other occupations where that aggression and that um, physicality could have been expressed more productively. Yeah, um, if if not for the martial arts and for having mentors, I'm sure. I'm not sure I would have ever enjoyed bars that much, but I'm sure I would have been getting a fight somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think that we as a culture are addicted to culture as an explanation, hmm. right? But I think it's, it's really compelling that this is actually a reflection of underlying biology of males hmm. and females, right? Because we see it across every culture, as you said. Um, but we also see it in other animals, hmm. right? Like, uh, you know juvenile chimpanzee males engage in more rough and tumble play than juvenile females yeah. same for baboons and macaques mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and uh and they they get in fights more often yeah. right if you look at chimpanzee troops 
male chimps go out and kill members of other of other chimp groups. Mm. Females really don't do that. Yeah. So I think it's something that we really have to recognize as as an important aspect of the the life history of males. Yeah. yeah. And think about how we're actually structuring it so that it ends in pro-social dynamics yeah. rather than anti-social dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean it's it's yeah, it's important to keep those you know, biologically based sex differences in mind. I mean, of course like you know, the young male syndrome and a lot of those externalizing expressions of of uh, male behavior that can be sort of contained and inhibited and and channeled in certain directions based on culture and environmental incentives and laws and norms and expectations but uh, the, the the difference between men and women you know that's not going to go away and in fact at least the data that I've seen so far it seems that the sort of the more socio-politically equal the society is the wealthier a society is the the larger the differences become between men and women now you can sort of shrink the overall amount of, of say violent crime for mm-hmm. example you can you can dampen it down but in terms of the difference between men and women yeah. that either remains the same or grows larger uh, and it's so, a very important, right? Because yeah. if, if, if we have, I think it's, you know, when we start talking about these things, it's very easy to mistake the fact like, okay, so let's say 93% of murders are men and, you know, so, well, yeah, it's like what, 93% of murder, murderers are men and 70% of murder victims are men. Yeah, yeah that's like roughly, that. yeah. 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 Um, so we could say that's a tragedy but it's much less of a tragedy in a society that has you know 1.5 murders per 100,000 people mm-hmm. right per yeah. annum versus one that has 17 murders yeah. per uh, per 100,000 per annum which you know I think I think the the first figure is close to what we see in Japan yeah right and uh, you know the second figure would be like Ecuador yeah I think Ecuador was up to like 54 yeah which is you know it's massive so mm-hmm. getting the murders to be 50 50 seems way less important than that and, and just and reducing the overall yeah, 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 yeah. right the, the overall reduction in murders is amazing and, and what it shows is that right the fundamental biological difference between males and females hasn't changed yeah but the murder rate yeah has vastly changed. Right, the absolute value has declined, but the relative remains more or less the yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. It's an, it's an important <laughs> point to keep in mind because we yeah we, we pay a lot of attention to sort of culture and we pay a lot of attention to you know is it you know what's nature versus what's nurture mm-hmm. and 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 focusing on these relative values. But the absolute value I think is is important as well. I mean we yeah they, I mean there there are these patterns as well with um, yeah just just. Uh, uh, acting out in general among men mm-hmm. and we sort of focus on you know well they're more likely than women to do this and that's important right it sort of indicates yeah. you know strongly suggests biologically based reasons for for the behavior but then some people will read that and sort of mistakenly infer that you know they throw up their oh so you're saying we shouldn't do anything you know men are just or, like that. that like there's something yeah. that like it's like we can't change it yeah but it, even if the the relative thing relative difference stays the same yeah if the absolute number changes dramatically then obviously we have yeah the capacity to impact how those things express right yeah you're not going to extinguish sex differences but you can sort of dampen uh the male propensity for violence and to mm-hmm. some extent the female propensity yeah. too right when, when you have laws when you yeah. have you know uh, police and so on so i think i mean generally i think that something that suppresses violence will tend to kind of suppress violence across the board yeah right, right. or at least that we could posit that mm-hmm. now um 
here's what I'm curious about. Or when I when I moved to Seattle, I had grown up in a community where fistfights were really common, and I would talk about all the fistfights I got into. And when I started to develop a new social peer group in Seattle, everyone would look at me like I was an alien, right? Mm. And I started asking like all my male peers in Seattle, like, "Hey, have you ever been in a fistfight?" Like they hadn't. Yeah. And that was super weird for me. And, I f- and it felt to me like there was a kind of passive-aggressive oh, yeah. approach mm. to interaction that was like, I kind of wish all these guys had gotten bopped in the nose at least once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm curious how, I think you had a similar experience that you've written about when mm. you arrived at Yale, mm. right? What was it like to enter an environment where... Um, where the male or, or the just the propensity to violence, the reality of violence was something that was so removed from the experience of, of many people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I speak a lot about this with a, with a friend of mine who was a former Marine mm-hmm. and we sort of, you know, compare notes on this cause you know, he also went to Yale and we sort of, you know, just, just the, uh, the way that aggression is expressed mm-hmm. among sort of upper middle class, upper, upper class people and how it's, you know, it's uh, uh, you know, it's just sort of indirect. It's it's not even overtly. You know, the verbal aggression isn't even overtly verbal. It's sort of indirect. It's snide. It's undercutting. It's uh, a lot of sort of backbiting. I mean, in many ways, honestly, it's very feminine. Uh, the way that sort mm-hmm. of in, in in the psychological research, sort of how aggression is expressed, men it tends to be more overt, more physical, or just sort of you know uh, directly verbal aggression. Whereas with women, they tend to express, and in girls, they tend to express uh, aggression more verbally, or through gossip, or innuendo, or or backbiting, or reputation destruction. And generally, it seems to be this way among men and women, uh, among the the upper middle class of so just sort of. You know, they'll they'll say something, or they'll 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 be very kind to you to your face, but then behind your back, they'll you know start spreading toxic yeah. rumors or or uh, calling into question some of your um, you know your your capabilities, or or imply that you're lying about something. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting, or or like sort of silent judgments about maybe the way that you're dressed or the way that you speak, or mm-hmm. all of the sort of the class coded stuff gets involved there too. Um, yeah, yeah. An example just came to mind, and I and I just lost it. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's that's generally what I what I noticed is, um, you know, very very sort of subtle, you know, like even even words like interesting. Oh, that's an interesting coat to wear to this, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And it, and and sometimes interesting can be a compliment, but it's almost yeah. the way that it's delivered yeah, and yeah, in yeah. the context mm-hmm. whether interesting is good or bad. So yeah, this yeah. sort of am, you know the ambiguity around it, and it's intentional, I think. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, um, and so so yeah. But but being overtly physical is, is hugely frowned upon. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you're at a you know a, a cocktail party or something, or or any kind of uh, gathering among, um, you know, among the what do you call them the gentry, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and if you were even, even to just like like lightly shove someone, that would be like that. That's all anyone would talk about, like mm-hmm. that event. They're just so removed from any kind of physical violence, any kind of physical threat, and and yeah, I think that also has. Um, sort of influence the ways that they think about crime, the ways that they think about violence, and yeah. words are violence. But in their world, yeah. words are violence because to them, it really does hurt them. So, so I've been thinking a lot about this idea that uh, again, it's kind of taboo to talk about it. But there is a male prototypical expression of violence and a female prototypical expression of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, you know 
you looked at my girlfriend wrong, I'm going to punch you in the face, mm-hmm. right? And then on the flip side, we have, you know, gossiping, reputation destruction, you know, uh, passive aggression. Um, and one of the things that I think is fundamentally a big problem in our world right now is that we've lost, in some sense, the pro-social aspect of male typical aggression because that's rough and tumble play. Mm-hmm. And it actually teaches us empathy and the capacity to, to regulate aggression. Mm-hmm. So we, we've tamped down the, 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 the negative side of it, the clear physical expression of it to some degree um, with like anti-bullying uh, policies and stuff like that. But we've also removed the part of it that actually teaches people how to regulate their aggression. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're seeing a ramping up of the social side of aggression. And I think that social media is actually the greatest force amplifier that we've ever seen for female typical aggression. Yeah, that's right. Like, I think that we've basically gone from, uh, like, imagine, like, you know, men were punching each other with fists and then they were picking up rocks and then putting mm-hmm. rocks on the ends of sticks and then, mm-hmm. you know, and then metal and then guns and, you know. There's been a sort of slow progression of that over time and then the adaptation of the culture to it. I feel in some ways like Instagram and TikTok are like female typical aggression going from the Stone Age to the nuclear age in one step. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've uh, I, yeah, I've noticed this too I, because a lot of the... Yeah, so, so much of the reputation destruction, so much of like the cancel culture online, mm-hmm. the social mobs, they are... Um, you know, it's very interesting. I would say maybe majority female like the people mm-hmm. who lead this the people who will do this sort of quote tweets or this sort yeah. of leading the charge on this and, and I've, I've seen some men too but it's it's you know it's overwhelmingly sort of college educated yeah um you know upper middle class gentry class people who um you know they're well practiced in their social lives doing this mm-hmm. kind of uh, gossip innu- innuendo in this style of, of, of aggression and then yeah on the social media just scales it up you you can't really you can't enact male typical aggression online you can't um you, know, you can't uh, punch a thousand people in the face at the same time <laughs> but you can get a thousand people to hate one person yeah. uh, overnight so that when that person wakes up in the morning um you know their their reputation is in tatters and you know they're they're fired from their job or they're uh now if you google their name you know the first you know three or four hits are you know so and so is whatever the taboos of our time are yeah. uh and and so yeah it's uh yeah it's 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 almost sort of tailor-made for that kind of um dark triad sort of psychopathic strategy of of uh you know that that, that like sort of extreme form of female aggression i think I think it's hard for us in some sense to take seriously the idea that this female typical form of aggression is actually like really worth considering. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, some of the stuff that has been shared here, Jonathan Haidt's research, Warren Farrell, um, various other people have talked about the fact that we're seeing sky, you know, skyrocketing mental health disorders, suicide rates are going up, anxiety rates, the, the number of young people who are on, on psychiatric medication yeah. is really higher. It yeah. is rising really rapidly. I think they said here in the, the UK, where we are right now, it's one in seven people are on some kind of psychiatric medication. It's probably higher for young people, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I looked at this in 2012, and in the States, it was one in five American women were mm. on psychiatric medication. Wow. So I think we, we do need to take this, <laughs> yeah. this kind of aggression very seriously. And <laughs> for some reason, it reminds me of a Louis C.K. quote, which mm. is... Uh, 
Um, raising boys and raising girls is very different. Uh, boys will destroy your stuff, but mm. girls will destroy your soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is a funny way of, of synthesizing this, but that's kind of what's happening to people who become the targets of mm. cancel culture um, you know, online, is it's an attempt, and often a very successful attempt, yeah. to, to destroy someone's sense of self. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if this was a Louis C.K. quote. I thought you were going. I don't know if this is, this is his, but it was something like, uh, you know, men men will kill you, women will get you to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I think there is, yeah. And 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 I mean, it's it's a funny quote, but it is like it does happen with social media, right? The mm-hmm. cancel culture, the mob culture. There have been stories of high schoolers who, you know, they're they've been. Um, uh, scapegoated online or something, and then they do end up committing suicide yeah. because I mean, it, it, all people forget just how um, how much more intense emotions feel during yeah. puberty and adolescence, and and how because you don't really have that breadth of perspective that if you think you're angry, you think, oh, this is how it is now. Now yeah, I'm just right. angry all the time. Been, or if you're sad, you're like, this is, okay, I'm just going to have to be sad forever. This is life. And you don't yet understand that you're sad, and then in an hour you're going to feel different, and your emotional baseline will return. But you just, everything, and so when you're, especially humiliation, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and, um, and you know, I, I went to high school, and before the social media age, um, I think, like, MySpace, that sort of, you know, the primitive social yeah. media, it was just getting started and uh and so yeah we didn't like you know the, the kind of uh uh examples of humiliation i saw it was like just in person pointing at someone and laughing or mocking them or mm-hmm. you know pulling a prank on them but i can imagine uh you know the way that news travels online that you walk onto campus one day and everyone's laughing at you and you don't know why and then you pull up your phone and someone spread a rumor about you and now yeah. you know all 2,000 people in your high school believe this, I can imagine like that feeling of, if this is how life is now, I'm just gonna feel totally ashamed and humiliated. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine, again, like young male syndrome, that impulsivity of why not just end it. Um, and yeah, I think this is, yeah, this is like really, uh, um, yeah, something that I think adults kind of overlook is that feeling and how that, uh, how social media can sort of create those, that you know, probably has a lot to do with the, these stats you've been citing yeah. anti anti-depressants anti-anxiety medication I think it was it was Jonathan Hyde who um, I saw him share some some research on his substack about how you know something like 50% of, of young women uh, I think it's 18 to 29 are on some kind of uh, no no, no uh, uh, they have been diagnosed with a mental health condition, mm. something like 50%. Is it 50% of young women or is it specifically liberal? It might have been liberal, but I think even even 18 to 29-year-old, well, the thing is like most 18 to 29-year-old women in general <laughs> identify as liberal now, yeah, yeah. but I think it is, um, I think it's it's smaller for moderate yeah. and, and, and conservative, but I think across the board it was still like, like you know, if you just yeah. sort of collapse all the data together, it was something like 50%, so the, yeah, the, the, maybe 40. The difference yeah. in mental health reports between yeah. conservative, moderate, liberal, and uh, yeah. uh, far liberal, like yeah. people who report themselves to be yeah. uh, extremely liberal are, are pretty striking and kind of concerning. Um, yeah. So one of the questions that I've been working on is this fundamental idea that as we've, you know, in many ways rightly st- kind of worked towards greater equality in our culture, greater liberty for people to express variations of, you know, uh, masculinity, variations of femininity. Um, We've actually lost the capacity to describe a central aspect of what the masculine and the feminine is 
and then give people a pro-social aspirational model for it. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the questions I asked Warren Farrell when I interviewed him earlier this week is, is a question that uh, John Verveke asked me, which is, how is saying a good man not synonymous with just saying a good person? Hmm. And then we could reciprocally say, how is saying a good woman not synonymous with a good person? Hmm. And if those things aren't synonymous, how do we describe that hmm. in such a way that we can actually give people something to aspire to? Yeah. They can give meaning to their experiences. Yeah. So for you, just for you, if you just think about that question, how is a good man not synonymous with a good person? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I think on its, yeah. Well, I think, you know, in, in our sort of more politically correct society, that would be a difficult question to answer. But I think we, because we can't help but see the world through, um, through sort of sexed or gendered terms, um, you know, inevitably we're going to, 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 to think in, in that way of what is the, so, so, you know, good person is, I think that's something that anyone could do regardless, man or woman, you know, good person who's, who's kind or, or loyal. generous or loyal. But I think good man, I mean, that's, that's inevitably going to have something to do with this idea of traditional masculine virtues of, um, providing or protecting or, or taking a risk on behalf of loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a, just sort of thought experiments of like if a woman were to, uh, you know, like, like if a woman were to like uh, uh, defend her family against intruders, I don't know how many people would say she's a good woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they might, but I think they're much more likely to say in, in, in the, uh, the case of a man doing the same, that he's a good man, mm-hmm. um, that he did that. Um, whereas, like, good woman, I mean, I guess, yeah, those would be sort of associated more with the sort of feminine virtues of nurturing or care or providing um, sort of oversight for offspring, child rearing, those kinds of things. Um, I think, like, most, most cu- cultures, right, like sort of non-weird non um weird non western yeah, indi- uh, yeah non educated industrialized yeah uh, uh, rich, dem- rich democratic, democratic yeah. yeah that that most sort of more traditional small scale especially non industrialized societies like that i don't even know if they would have the concept of a good person honestly mm. like because their view of the world is so you know like labor is so segregated by sex you know men do the hunting and the gathering or the yeah. fishing and the women do the child rearing or the medicine making or something else and so it's just so everything is so split that um I, yeah i think like it's difficult for us right that that, that sex predates humanity even <laughs> and know. so you know yeah. it's it's not as if you woke up one day and decided to sort of articulate the way that you see humans or the world i mean you sort of you inherited this biology of splitting uh mammals yeah. into males and females and then all along Amelia, goes, right yeah. i mean so yeah it's an interesting it's something i'd have to dwell on a bit more but it is it is a good question yeah yeah the, my pithy response it took me a little while to respond to john was uh fundamentally i think I'm, i would say a good man is a man that i would trust in a shield wall mm. or a foxhole mm. right i think that, that if you look at how most traditional men would sort of select friends mm. You would be looking for somebody who, you know, uh, has the characteristics where 
if you need to, d to trust them to be willing to defend your life and co-defend your life, that you trust that they would do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of like traditional male insults are actually fundamentally about that. Right. You don't seem like the type of person who mm -hmm. I could trust in that situation. Uh, right. And a lot of times male teasing is about trying to push somebody to the point of them showing what they have. Oh, yeah. And I thought this was interesting because I remember really clearly as a young man getting in fights mm -hmm. and having a deep sense as soon as the fight was over that I liked the other guy much better than I liked him before the fight. I was irritated with him. I hated him. <laughs> I didn't like him. I just like had all this negative energy and then I wanted to fight him. And once we fought and he like didn't run away, didn't cower, like if he threw fists back, mm. you know, whoever won, it was like, okay, yeah, you know, yeah. like if, if we need to fight some other guys together, <laughs> I know you're going to, I know you're going to be down. Right. Right. And then I, I would say the reciprocal for that. And I think, you know, I could get canceled for both of these um, is I think a good woman is fundamentally someone that, that you would trust with an infant. Hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. Because I th if you go if you go back all the way to the beginning of sex, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you talk about this in the young male syndrome. Uh, I think you said that if you took one man's year supply of sperm, you could mm -hmm. circle the earth. Uh, twice, yeah, yeah. Twice. So if you laid a man's sperm cells throughout like, lifetime production of sperm. Uh, lifetime, okay, lifetime. Yeah, end to end, it would circle the earth twice. And then for women, if you laid their, their egg cells, their sex cells, yeah. end to end, uh, it would circle a ping pong ball once. Yeah. 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 So we have, you know, a fundamental asymmetry in sexual reproduction that drives the, the development of, of sex characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, and so in general, men are, males are the more competitive, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you have like sex reverse species like seahorses, but this is a very, very small percentage mm -hmm. of what's out there. Um, but human beings are relatively unique. And I think, you know, like Jordan Peterson will often say that, um, that men and women are mostly the same. And I, I always think that's kind of a funny thing to say because I'm like, what do you mean by that, right? Yeah. Like, what's the comparison set? Are you saying like human males and females are more similar than like walrus males and females? Mm. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I actually think that there are certain ways in which human males and females are uniquely sexually dimorphic mm. because like walrus males and females, they actually do the same job. They're just different sizes doing the same job. They do this, you know, they hunt the same way. They hunt the same things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, falcons hunt the same things. Wolves and lions. But human males and females have a system where in most traditional cultures, males are big game hunters and mm -hmm. females gather and do some small game hunting. Mm -hmm. um, to have like an apex predator mm -hmm. cohabitating with a mesopredator and, and, you know, omnivore is a really... Like obviously human males are omnivores because they eat the product of females uh, labor in those cultures as well. But but essentially they're acting in the ecology predominantly yeah. as apex predators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's quite unique. Yeah. And yeah. so the human male is essentially, you know, as you laid out in that article, right? The shoulders are broader, 60% more upper body mass, mm. harder hands, harder skull. Yeah. Part of that's intra intraspecies violence, but also it's adaptation to to hunting. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Projectile throwing. Projectile uh, throwing. Uh, if you look at um, so there's uh, data on on three year olds, mm-hmm. and already by age three, boys can throw farther and more accurately than three year old girls, and that's before puberty, before the expansion of the shoulders and testosterone and all of those things. And already this sort of and this is an indication strongly suggests that you know boys. And males' bodies are uniquely adapted to to throw things, right? Yeah. Probably because of the, in the ancestral environment uh, that was beneficial for for hunting and probably for warfare as well. And so, so yeah, I mean, think there, yeah, th- I mean, it's a good point. I, I'm, I'm trying to, th- I think like there are some, I, yeah, I don't know, like the, like you mentioned this, this sort of point of comparison. I'm thinking like maybe compared to other other apes i mean so human males are unique among mammals and that we provide a ton of offspring care yeah that's for example that isn't really interesting and so you could like i mean yeah you can leave so if you left a, a an infant you know even if it's th- that that male chimpanzee's infant with him with no female mm-hmm. around that that chimpanzee probably local likelihood of survival i mean they're, they're they're pretty mobile already when they're born they can kind of get around but that male will provide very little if any care yeah. Whereas you can, uh, you know, there are single fathers, there are men who can like raise an infant to adulthood. Um, and so there are like sort of, there is some overlap there. Um, but, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like there's probably, it probably depends on the measure there, of interest. Yeah. It's sort of like there's certain ways in which human males are uniquely feminine. Yeah. 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 And certain ways in which we're exaggeratedly Masculinized relative to the females of the same species. Yeah, yeah, a bit more sort of uh, you know, rangy. You know, mm-hmm. human males are kind of rangy in that way. That yeah, they're they're sort of both yeah, sort of more pronounced in their masculinity and their physicality, but also there is that sort of tenderness and that warmth mm-hmm. and that uh, uh, providing and provisioning care for for offspring and and for female partners too. Like a lot of a lot of mammalian species, like they don't help the mother yeah, of yeah. the offspring at all. So. Yeah, 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 but but this, I mean, yeah, this is this is sort of required because of our sort of unique, you know, actually, yeah, uh, a different part of our physicality, right? Large brains mm-hmm. and and pregnancy and all of those kinds of things that required male contribution, and so that's kind of a, a unique element to to Homo sapiens. So. Yeah, so we are we are unique in our expression of these poles of of the, of the male and the female, but it, um, but we're unique both in ways that are more exaggerated and also less exaggerated. Hmm. Which is an interesting, uh, an interesting component of uh, of the human experience. Like I think, um, I've thought about this idea of male virtue and female virtue, mm-hmm. right? So, if you think about that idea that you know, in in most traditional societies, a young man really can't even be considered a young man. Mm. He can't be considered a man until he can kill a large game animal, hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he has to risk his life to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is Warren Farrell's point: is like w- males are the disposable sex. Yeah. Um, so we, we, manhood is a status that that yeah. men attain through their willingness to take risk for the group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. The manhood is a it's an achieved status, mm-hmm. uh, especially in more sort of traditional, small scale, non industrialized societies. Um, there's a nice line uh, in one of Roy Baumeister's books where he says, uh, you know, uh, in many societies, a boy does not automatically become a man. He has to pass some kind mm-hmm. of s- stringent set of rituals or some kind of test or produce more than he consumes. Whereas uh, uh, in contrast for, for girls, they just sort of biologically naturally mature into women. And it seems to be because um, 
women can have children, and that in itself is a major contribution to the community, yeah. the ability to bear and raise children. That's a monumental task. It's a very physical, visible indicator that, oh, you were a girl and now you're a woman, whereas for boys, it's less clear. It takes a bit longer. It's a bit uncertain. And, uh, and yeah, well, like, what exactly are you contributing? You know, if you can't contribute a child, you have to contribute something. And so in that case, these, um, these rituals come into play. So... Um I think part of that is also that uh, the the consequences of adulthood are much easier for men to escape, hmm. right? So uh, m- most people have sex drives, and in a society that there's no contraception, and often there's some sort of male course of control of women, unfortunately, uh, young women don't really have the opportunity to choose not to get pregnant, hmm. mm-hmm. right? But a man can not go hunt. Yeah, he faces social shan- sanction when he chooses not to go hunt. Yeah, and and you know this kind of plays to um, to Jordan's point about like you know in particular young men are injured by a lack of responsibility and mm-hmm. you know um, uh, this message that they can go disappear into video games. Yeah. So I've been given the warning that we only have three minutes left. Okay. So we're <laughs> kind of in the middle of a very yeah. uh, a very interesting topic. So maybe you and I can pick up the conversation another time because yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I feel like we just barely uh, have gotten started. It's really fun to talk with you about this stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'll finish my last point and hear what you have to say about it. So if we imagine that young man who has to go out and, and kill a buffalo, uh, that will earn him the status of manhood. That will earn him the admiration of his peers. Mm-hmm. But if he's sweet and tender with infants, yeah. that, won't, that won't degrade from that, mm-hmm. right? right. It, it can in certain situations where coalitional violence is very important. But in general, we can see that what we might consider feminine virtue is actually very valuable in men and necessary. Yeah. In the same sense, um, like you said, if a woman saves her, her child, uh, save somebody from a fire right yeah. we might not say she's a good woman but we will say she's a hero yeah and the heroic capacity to self-sacrifice yeah. to be strong to have courage mm-hmm. is something we admire in women just as much as we admire it in men mm-hmm. but the cultures that individ- that men as a group create and the women as a group create prioritize these different virtues somewhat yeah. differently yeah. and that's and also it plays out a lot in the reproductive game. How do men judge women that they would like to reproduce with versus how women judge men that they would like to reproduce with? So that's kind of my final thought. I'd love mm-hmm. to hear you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, something occurred to me when that. you gave the, the fire example of, you know, if, if a woman were to, like if there was someone trapped and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the woman declined to enter, I, I versus a man, I suspect that she would receive sort of less condemnation, yeah. right? It's almost expected as a man that you would risk your life in that context especially if it's a, if it's a loved one uh where there's there is this sort of burden of being courageous of being mm-hmm. brave of sort of what being willing to risk yourself um and yeah it doesn't quite exist in the same way for women which i guess is yeah it sort of goes back to your point being good man so, versus yeah so i think that's really interesting because if it's her child yeah absolutely she will be judged yeah, yeah if yeah, it's yeah. someone else's child yeah she won't face, uh, face the same judgment as a man i don't think right i think yeah, it yeah. has to do with the disposability of men yeah. and the assumption of women as the default parent. Because if you look at a woman, her capacity to self-sacrifice yeah. is seen as more impactful on her children yeah, yeah, yeah. than a man's self-sacrifice. Oh, so, so do you think that if a man, if it was the man's child, 
uh, versus if it was the woman's child, the man would be judged less than the woman? No, no. Oh, okay, okay, I think okay. that it's equal. Yeah, yeah. But if it's somebody else's child, the woman is not does not have as much burden yeah. to go outside of herself for pro-social courage yeah, yeah, yeah. as the man does. And I think part of that mm-hmm. is actually because we consider women more critical to their own children. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. So if she's sacrificing herself for society, mm-hmm. that means she's actually taking herself out of the needs of her children. Right. And we consider the male rule to be more basically flexible. Yeah. We need the women to, like, and it's true, right? Yeah. Like, if a woman is lactating, the man literally can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Where they're, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, like you said, like, men are the more expendable in, in the sense of uh, uh, continuing on, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, a, a genetic lineage. So, and then, uh, yeah, I think that was, uh, I mean, there was, there was one other final thought I had about your, your point about um, uh, sort of, sort of men and, and uh, you know, if, if they're able to, to, to hunt the buffalo, but then also care for the infant, I think that if they're able to do both, um, generally it would be lauded, but if a man can only care for an infant and not hunt the buffalo, then they will be judged very harshly for yeah. that. And I think, yeah, maybe this goes to your earlier point about, um, you know, like sort of living up to a certain certain image of masculinity or manliness and, and being able to trust someone, you know, yeah, it's great if a man can 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 care for an infant, but that but it doesn't necessarily indicate that you could trust him in a uh, in a potentially physically violent altercation. And I think even even women to some extent, they like a man who can be nurturing, but only if the man is also capable of yeah. violence and protection and those kinds of things. If the man can only be nurturing to an infant, I think even women would find that um, uh, you know sort of sort of less interesting or less appealing. Certainly, as a romantic partner. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. So we, our selection criteria that we express and revealed preferences, both in friendship, you know, like the r- literature on cross-sex friendships, how mm-hmm. do women judge men? Yeah. They don't judge them the same as they would ju- judge potential female friends. They judge them much more like they would judge a potential male partner. A potential male partner. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so men that. get a certain selection from mm-hmm. other men, which is reflected in the way that women, right, yeah. and yeah. vice versa. So it's more important for male friendships to demonstrate this capacity or males to demonstrate this to receive the friendship of other males than it is for women to receive the friendship of other women yeah 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 yeah, that was well put yeah yeah it's a good uh yeah the 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 differences in terms of yeah the the, like the way that people pick their friends and yeah there's a lot of a lot of interesting directions we could go from there (laughs) there's so much we we could say but we're getting kicked out of the studio yeah we can table it for another time but this has been great this is awesome thank you very much thank you